in Amos, the 15th chapter, having, uh, um, in the last two weeks, talked about, actually the last three weeks, we've been talking about uh, the qualities or the characteristics of a man or woman who have come to the point where they have offered their life to Jesus, their Christ, as a living sacrifice. Chapter 12, verse 1 begins by saying that the, the most reasonable thing that a man or woman could ever do is to present their life to their maker wholly, completely for him to use. It's the smartest thing, the most reasonable thing a woman could ever do. And what follows in the next three and a half chapters is a description of what that man or woman is like who has given their, li their life to the Lord as a sacrifice, the characteristics and qualities that uh, accompany them. And we, the first half of chapter 15 finishes up that discussion. You'll remember that last week in chapter 14 we talked primarily about the kinds of disputes that arise among Christians over matters of conduct where the scripture is basically silent. I'm talking about the kinds of things that um, the Bible doesn't speak to directly, but people have questions about whether or not they ought to engage in them, such as the illustration I gave you last week, watching television. I told you about a friend of mine who believes that as a Christian, or at least believed that as a Christian, I mean, but uh, he believed that as a Christian he could not watch television. There was just too much filth coming across those airwaves and he didn't want it pumping into his home. He felt he was, had a conviction about the fact that the Lord would not want him to do that. And then there, are, then there is a friend, another friend of mine, who um, takes the complete opposite viewpoint and says that we are free to engage in, in anything within uh, moderation. And th this other friend always jumps on the one friend who doesn't feel he could watch television and gets on his case and says, you're, you're not free in Jesus. You're immature. You're weak in the faith. If you think that uh, by turning on a television, you're going to go to hell or something like that. But th these are the kinds of issues that um, for the entire time that the church has been existent has been in existence these kind of issues have ravaged the people of God things that really don't matter and yet we fight over them and people's salvation which is the most important thing is jeopardized because of disputes about whether or not a person can watch TV go to the show dance smoke drink these kinds of things that the, that the scriptures don't speak directly to. Evidently, they weren't real important to God either. And yet they are so important to us that we, we do violence to people because of them. And there's whole movements of Christians that have sprung up over s such issues as this. Whether you work whether women should uh, use cosmetics, whether they should, uh, well, any number of things. You know what I'm talking about. You've seen it, you've been a part of it, and so on. And chapter 14 talks about this whole issue. Chapter 15 continues. 
this discussion. Remember that Paul in chapter 14 said that it's the, it is the stronger brother who understands his liberty in Christ. Paul said, identifies the stronger brother as the one who understands that all things are lawful but not all things are profitable, that, that, that nothing in and in in of itself is bad, that we are free now to enjoy all things it's the stronger brother, Paul says, that understands his liberty. It's the weaker brother who feels that his salvation is somehow uh, tied to do's and don'ts. But Paul says that the stronger brother needs to give way to the weaker brother in these matters and needs to understand that the kingdom of God is not meat or drink. And if you're jeopardizing another brother's salvation, if you're causing him to stumble because of your liberty, you're the one that's out of line. That's what the scripture has to say and Paul continues that discussion here. We then, verse 1, chapter 15, who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. Now there are uh, two things to consider when you approach subjects uh, of conduct that the scripture doesn't directly relate to and they both begin with C. The first is conviction and the second is consideration. Two things to think about when you approach matters of conduct that the Bible doesn't specifically address. Conviction and consideration. Now let's look at chapter, back up to chapter 14 verse 5 let's talk about this or let's see how Paul talks about this matter of conviction. Chapter 14, verse 5. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. In other words, some people think we should worship on this day. Some people think we should worship every day. Some people think we should worship on, on, uh, on our knees. Some people think we should worship standing on our head. You know, these kinds of things. Verse 5. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Convinced. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Paul doesn't establish one way or the other, but he says this, be convinced about it in your own mind. Be able to stand before God and have a conviction about it. Don't just participate in something. Don't take on a, a manner of conduct just because everybody else does it. Be convinced in your own mind. Know in your heart of hearts that you're right before God. Even if everybody in the church watches television, but you're convinced in your own heart that you shouldn't, you better not be convinced in your own mind. Verse 14 of chapter 14, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. This matter of conviction, having a conviction about it, it plays a big part in whether or not it is wrong or right for you. Verse 23, the same chapter. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats. This is the matter of one guy eats meat, thinks it's okay, another guy doesn't, so he eats vegetables. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. If you cannot be involved in something in full conscience, having a conviction in your heart, and in faith believing that you're doing the right thing, you're doing the wrong thing. We need to be, to have a conviction in our hearts about these matters of conduct that the Bible doesn't specifically address. 
We need to be convinced. We can't we need to be convinced that it's right. And and this is not a matter of convincing ourselves either. It's a matter of of allowing the Spirit of God to give us a, a, a firm faith conviction about these things. So that you don't have to always be second-guessing yourself. And come walking out of a show and think, I shouldn't have been in there. Or this or that. But to be able to know, have a conviction in your heart about it. It's a very important part of, of determining what's right and what's wrong in these cases. The other thing is conscience. Conscience and consider... I'm sorry. Conscience and conviction kind of go together. Consideration. So conviction and then consideration. Um, chapter 14, verse 15. Yet, if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. So even if you have come to a conviction about a certain matter of conduct, but you're causing your brother to stumble or to be tripped up in his walk in Jesus because of it, out of consideration for him, you need not do it. So this matter of consideration even overrides the matter of conviction. Verse 21 of chapter 14. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 13. There was a real issue in the early church about food. Because so many of the initial Christians were Jews and had such a tremendous backlog of uh, laws regarding uh, what foods to eat, how to prepare them, and so on and so forth, that there was that element in the church. Then there was also this matter of the foods offered to idols and whether a Christian should be eating food that had been offered to idols. So food was a big deal, a big issue in the early church. And uh, Paul says in verse 13 of chapter 8 here in 1 Corinthians, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now Paul understood his liberty, that he was free to eat anything. He was free to partake of anything, but he had determined that if in a matter of something as simple or as mundane or, or uh, frivolous as whether or not he would eat meat, or vegetables, he would never eat meat again if he knew that it would cause a brother to stumble. Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 6, that if, um, if someone offended one of these little ones, he said, he said that nobody could uh, come into the kingdom of heaven unless they become like a little one, like a child. That if anybody offends one of his little ones, it would be better for them. be better for them if a millstone was tied around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. And so, it's, you know, this matter of offending our brothers is a real heavy number. And even if we have a conviction before God about these manners of con matters of conduct that says, it's all right. I have, I have in full conscience a conviction before God that what I'm doing is okay for me. Yet, 
consideration for where our brothers and sisters are at overrides that one. And if we are, by our conduct, causing another brother to be offended or tripped up, is, is a literal translation of that Greek word, tripped up, if he cannot come to grips with why you're able to do that and he doesn't feel right with it and you're jeopardizing his salvation over something like television or wine then like Paul I think we need to say I'll never do that again it's not that important I'm free to do anything but I'm also free not to do them for the sake of my brother and that was Paul's stand and that's what he's trying to get across here when he says in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 15, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. You know, uh, one of the questions that I get asked a lot has to do with uh, whether or not a Christian can... Uh, uh, you know, drink wine or alcoholic beverages. I get asked that a lot because I guess I'm a pastor and people figure that if they can get my okay on it, they're all right. But you know, th this is something that the scripture, I mean, if you really go, I mean, if you really want to know the truth, the scripture gives license to that. However, and I don't know where really where it comes from, in our culture, there is a um, in the United States, in our culture, there is an undercurrent that came from someplace that has put into the minds of people that drinking alcohol is somehow contrary to the will of God. Just not, not, we're ta not talking drunkenness, we're just talking just the imbibing of alcoholic beverages. That somehow that is connected with sin. And so, when, that's why the question comes up because people when they start to um, come into the family of God they, they look at things like that in, in their life and they say well this boy I know that's wrong you know I shouldn't do that so they ask well it is wrong when it causes a brother to stumble even if we're free to do it and we are short of drunkenness the admonition of the scripture is don't be drunk with wine. That's what the scripture says. That's where the line is drawn in scripture. But there's another line that gets drawn when my freedom to do that causes my brother to stumble. And so it is that for me, a long time ago, I decided like Paul that that would be something I'd never do. I would never drink alcohol. If it was going, to, because I know it's such an issue with so many people. And because I'm in such a public uh, Role. It's funny. One time I was at this, these people's home and we were having communion, and they had a common cup that we were passing, and they were using real wine. And I had made a decision years before: I never let alcohol touch my lips. And this cup came along, and I drank from it. And I thought, I after and I, after I did that, I really thought that I lost my virginity. I mean, I just really I thought this is I just. I was crushed by it and I had to go through a whole period of searching out before God whether I'd really blown my, my commitment to him or something you know and the Lord told me it was okay so <laughs> but I'm telling you that there is there needs to be and I use this not to put on you something that the Lord has given me 
as a conviction for my life, but to say that all of us will need to make choices like that out of consideration for our brothers. Now we'll let the Lord nail you with that one. But let's, one more verse, uh, Romans 14, verse 22. Do you have faith, and he means by that, do you have a conviction and a faith to be, to be um, partaking of or involved in certain areas of conduct? He says, um, have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. So he's saying, if you have faith and a conviction about being able to be free to be involved in this, that's great. Happy is the man who can be involved in that thing before God and, and not be condemned. But he says, keep it to yourself and God. So there's certain uh, things that um, we can be involved in and, and be free before God but in a private sense where we're not going to be causing brothers and sisters to stumble. That's the last I'll say about that. Verse 3, chapter 15. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, and then he quotes from the Old Testament, the reproaches of those who reproached you, meaning God the Father, fell on me. He says, even Christ didn't come to please himself. And actually the reproaches that he absorbed were not aimed at him. The anger and the malice were not aimed at him but at his, at his father. But he took them. And as, when he quotes from the Old Testament then he, he uh, digresses for a brief moment in, chat, in uh, verse 4 and talks about how he, why he brings the Old Testament into view here. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Second Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is, is profitable. It's been given for our, our benefit. Alright, verse 5. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. In other words, stop quarreling about things like this that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of being caught up in a, in a fervor of arguing and so forth about things that don't really matter, become committed to like-mindedness that will allow you with one voice, with one mouth, to declare the glory of God. That's really what it's all about. And I choose that if there's anything in in my life that prohibits that from happening or complicates that from happening it's gonna go I want to be able with one voice with one mouth to declare the praises of God with my brothers and sisters and I don't want to let anything um, stand in the way of that verse 7 therefore receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of our God and he speaks to people on both sides of the issue. Receive each other. Quit fighting about it. It's not important. Receive each other as Christ has received you. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, and he quotes from four passages in the Old Testament, 
For this reason I will confess, you to, uh, confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall have hope. Now the reason he brings this business up is because uh, this dispute over which day to worship on, over whether you should eat meat or vegetables, basically boiled down to a dispute between the Gentiles and the Hebrews within the Roman church. And so after all of the smoke clears, he nails it on the head and he says that Christ came uh, as a servant to the circumcision to show to... Um, to confirm the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to show mercy on the Gentiles. And he brings this back to our common ground and once again says, stop this quarreling. But it's interesting to note here that you and I as Gentile believers um, are saved not as the result of the fulfillment of promises like the Jews. I mean, promises were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about the coming of the Messiah and about salvation. And so what they have experienced in salvation is the fulfillment of promises that were given to their forefathers, but you and I are simply saved by mercy. Mercy. None of our, you know, my, my fathers uh, in, out in the wilds of Germany someplace were never given any promises about the Messiah. I'm in it. I'm in the family of God purely by His mercy. And that's a neat thing to think about. Verse 13, now he changes tune and, and begins to wind down this um, epistle. And from here on out he's going to be talking in very personal tones. And uh, kind of uh, his, his, uh, his lesson, if you please, his sermon is done. And now he's just going to be closing the letter with some uh, personal observations. It's good stuff, but the tone of it changes now. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I myself am confident concerning you, brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And in these three verses, he's kind of apologizing for being so hard on him. He says, listen, I know, I know that you guys are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish each other. But I had to come down hard on you by way of reminder so that the things that are good in you will keep being good. And it's precisely for the, for the reason that there's good fruit in your life that I'm able to address you strongly. And he says, I'm doing this because of my calling as a minister of, the, of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Now verse 17. Therefore I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. In mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God so that from Jerusalem and round about to uh, Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel. 
not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he has not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. And here he says, um, I, there's some things for me to be, uh, to, um, to glory in Christ over. Not, and I'm not going to boast about things that I've done or other men have done, but I'm going to, to uh, boast in what Christ has done through me. In signs and wonders accompanying the preaching of the gospel all through the Roman Empire, all the way to Illyricum. He says, I have made a decision not to go where other men have gone so that I wouldn't be trying to build on somebody else's foundation, but I've gone where the gospel has never been before. Verse 22, For this reason I also have been much hindered from coming to you, but now, no, uh, but now no longer, having a place in these parts and having a great desire, these many of you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall uh, come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. He says, I've not gone where the foundation has already been laid. I've gone to people who haven't heard, and that's the reason I've not come to you. Even though Paul didn't personally found the church, and we don't even know if any of the apostles ever went to Rome prior to Paul's going, the church had been founded, and probably by peop uh, people that Paul had ministered to in other parts of the empire that had come to Rome, met each other, and, and developed the, the church there in Rome. But because there was already something happening there, Paul didn't see a need to go and said, for this reason I've been hindered from coming to you. But now, since my work is done here, I want to come to you on my way to Spain. There's something else I've got to do first, but then I'm going to try to go to Spain. And on my way, I want to stop by, and I want to be benefited by our, your company, and I'd like for somebody from, from your group to go with me on to Spain. Verse 25. But now, first, I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. And he says, first I've got to take this offering that I've collected among the, the Gentile churches back to Jerusalem, where the saints are, are really suffering. They're in persecution, they're poor, and uh, I'm going to take this gift from the Gentiles. And the Gentiles have given it freely, but also out of a debt, because they owe the gospel to the, to the Jews and the word of God to the Jews and he says I'm going there first to present this gift verse 28 therefore when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit I shall go by way of you to Spain we don't have any knowledge of whether Paul ever made that trip to Spain um, my feeling is that he didn't there's others obviously who would disagree but nowhere is it recorded whether he did or he didn't but it's interesting to note that he was determined to go and felt it was within the will of God and you always you know let's just think for a moment what if if it's true that Paul never made it to Spain um, was there something wrong with him for making that kind of bold declaration that I'm, I'm going to be going to Spain when I get done with, with Jerusalem and I'm going to stop by and see it. Is there something wrong with Paul or is there something short-sighted, some, some insensitivity in his part about making that kind of bold statement? I don't think so. I just think that Paul was a human being. 
And in fact, when one of the missionary journeys, he tried to go to this place and to another place, and the Holy Spirit said no. And he found himself on the shores at Ephesus, nowhere, to, not Ephesus, but um, on the shores of the Aegean Sea there with no place to go, except back, and he'd already been there. And then he had this vision in the night, come on over to us. And the Lord led him. But you know, we should take heart from things like that. Because this guy was just a man. He's just a man. Limited understanding, limited sensitivity, just like you and I. And yet God used him so mightily because he was, uh, he was yielded to the Lord. Not perfect. Yielded. Alright. Verse 29. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now, even though he could not be sure about the other part, whether he would make it to see them on his way to Spain or not, this part he was sure about. That when he came, he would come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel. It's interesting, and Paul showed up in Rome in chains. He arrived to them in chains, a prisoner. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But he, even though he arrived as a prisoner, and not at all under the circumstances that he had envisioned, still this was true. Because in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says that even though I'm bound and chained, the word of God is not chained. So when he said that I'm going to come to you in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel, he was telling the truth, even though he showed up in chains. Now I beg you, brethren, and he uses a real strong word, I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. And that word strive is, is uh, better translated agonize. He's calling them to real intercessory prayer on his behalf. And he asked them to pray for three things, and here they are that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Number three, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and be refreshed together with you. Now we'll close tonight by looking at how God answered those prayers. So turn over to Acts chapter 21. Paul is asking these Roman believers to pray about things that, you know, it was hard for them to envision. Jerusalem was a long ways away from Rome, even farther then than it is now. Now you could hop on a plane and be there in a matter of hours. Then you're talking days of travel. You couldn't pick up a newspaper and find out what was going on in Jerusalem. You couldn't get on the phone and call somebody to see. They had a very limited picture of what... Uh, was going on in Jerusalem, what Paul was facing. Kind of like you and I, only worse, when, when we are asked to pray for some guy, uh, some missionary over in Korea, or not Korea, that would not be the place to go as a missionary. Um, they're sending missionaries here. But to, uh, let's say to um, Pakistan, good place. Or Sri Lanka, that's a better one, okay? He'd say, let's pray for Joe Blow. you never heard of him before in, his, in your life, over in Sri Lanka. Let's pray for... Well, your mind just is blank. You know, you don't know what Sri Lanka's like. You don't know what it looks like. You can't even get a mental picture of what it looks like. You've never seen this guy before, so you can't even imagine his face. 
You don't know where he's from, what he talks like, what he sounds like, what he, what he um, the kind of a person that he is. And somebody's asking you to pray for this guy. We're so removed from it that it's kind of like, okay. And we stand there sort of with numb um, agreement. Whatever you say, I agree. Fine. Amen. So be it. And we're not really involved in the prayer, are we? I mean, we're trying, but we're limited in how, how much we, of ourselves we can give to this prayer because we can't imagine what, what we're praying about. Well, these people in Rome, they had the same problem. Somebody got up and, on uh, Wednesday night and read Paul's letter and asked him for prayer. He's going to Jerusalem. Uh, our brother Paul's on his way to Jerusalem. Let's agree together in prayer for him. And here's the three things he's asked for prayer for. Well, they had the same problem. They couldn't imagine what you know, those things were going to be like that Paul faced. He was sort of vague and brief in his letter. And yet, they gave themselves to prayer. We're talking about a distance of thousands of miles, a, a diverse culture difference. And yet, they listened to what Paul had to say and they agreed with him in prayer and God heard. God heard. And that's the reason I want to present this to you is because when we're called upon to participate in what God is doing in other parts of the world, even though it is hard for us at times to really get involved in that prayer, Let's understand that God hears and answers prayer. So they were, he asked them to pray um, for... Let's, I want to read them again so I don't want to say it wrong. That, that he might be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe. That his service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints and that he might come to them, Rome, the, the church in Rome, with joy. All right. Chapter 21 of the, of the book of Acts. Let's read verse 17. Paul had asked them to pray that his service for Jerusalem would be acceptable to the saints. In other words, that his laboring among the Gentiles, this gift that he was bringing from them, would be acceptable, would be received by the Jewish believers, the church in Jerusalem. Verse 17, Acts chapter 21. And when he had come to Jerusalem, the brethren uh, received us gladly, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. Answer number one. Another thing he asked for them to pray for was for his safety. At, from the, those in Judea who did not believe. So let's read verse 26, chapter 21. Then Paul took the men... And the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. And they weren't going to pray for him. They were going to kill him. Crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple, which was a false accusation, and has defiled this holy place. Verse 30. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Answer number two. Now turn over to Acts chapter 28. His third 
request was that he could come to see them in Rome. Well, Paul, the uh, Roman guards stopped the people who were attempting to take Paul's life, but they took him prisoner instead. And after a period of two years imprisonment in Caesarea, and then travels, shipwreck, and what have you, he finally arrives in Rome, verse 11, chapter 28. After three months we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers, which had wintered at the island, and landing at Syracuse we stayed three days. From there we circled round and reached uh, Regium, or something like that, and after one day the south wind blew, and the next day we came to Petuli where we found brethren and uh, were invited to stay with them seven days, and so went toward Rome. From there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Appy from uh, Appy Forum and Three Inns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. And when we came to Rome, the centurion divided the pr or delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Paul made it. Answer number three. But notice one more thing before we go tonight that these three, of these three requests, two of them, two of them were answered, but not in the way that Paul would have planned or that the people praying would have planned. They were praying, God, spare uh, Paul from the hands of the Jews in Judea who don't believe. God did that. God answered prayer. But who would have thought that God would have answered prayer by sending the Roman troops to intervene they were saying, Lord, allow Paul to be able to visit us after his, his time in Jerusalem. Paul wants to come see us. God grant that he would be able to come and be with us. But who would have ever thought that God would have answered that prayer after a period of two years in prison in Caesarea, after a shipwreck on the way to Rome, and have Paul arrive in chains and in custody. God answered the prayers, but not in the way that they would have expected. Now, I want us to learn two things from that. God does answer prayer. Even over many miles, even diverse cultures, even things that are hard for us to understand, God answers prayer. Please don't shrink back from praying for things that are beyond the scope of your own sphere because God hears and answers prayer. And part of being a Christian is being a part of what God is doing around the world. So, so understand, God answers prayer like that. But also take heart in the fact that probably more times than not, God will answer prayer in ways that surprise you. And don't pin God in. Don't try to tell him how to do things. Just because without fail, as soon as you try to tell him how to do it, he's going to do it a different way. God refuses to be a servant uh, or a, yeah, a servant to any other master. He serves, but out of his mastery, he will not be told what to do. And God's ways are so much higher than ours, we could never approach uh, the wisdom to be able to counsel God on how to do things. We could have, we could have never planned. Paul could have never planned what God was about to do and how God did it. It was a complete, complete surprise to him. God answered his prayer, but God did it in a way that accomplished so much more than Paul could have ever dreamed. 